Chapter 11, Part 4 of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter 11, Columbia, South Carolina. Part 4. April 29th. A grand smash. The news from New Orleans fatal to us. Met Mr. Weston. He wanted to know where he could find a place of safety for two hundred negroes. I looked into his face to see if he were in earnest, then to see if he were sane. There was a certain set of two hundred negroes that had grown to be a nuisance. Apparently all the white men of the family had felt bound to stay at home to take care of them. There are people who still believe negroes' property, like Noah's neighbors who insisted that the deluge would only be a little shower after all. These negroes, however, were plowed in Westons, a totally different part of speech. He gave field rifles to one company and forty thousand dollars to another. He is away with our army at Corinth. So I said, You may rely upon Mr. Chestnut, who will assist you to his uttermost in finding a home for these people. Nothing belonging to that patriotic gentleman shall come to grief if we have to take charge of them on our own place. Mr. Chestnut did get a place for them, as I said he would. Had to go to the governor's, or they would think we had hoisted the black flag. Heard there, we are going to be beaten as Cortez beat the Mexicans, by superior arms. Mexican bows and arrows made a poor showing in the face of Spanish accoutrements. Our enemies have such superior weapons of war, we hardly any but what we capture from them in the fray. The Saxons and the Normans were in the same plight. War seems a game of chess, but we have an unequal number of pawns to begin with. We have knights, kings, queens, bishops, and castles enough. But our skillful generals, whenever they cannot arrange the board to suit them exactly, burn up everything and march away. We want them to save the country. They seem to think their whole duty is to destroy ships and save the army. Mr. Robert Barnwell wrote that he had to hang his head for South Carolina. We had not furnished our quota of the new levy, 5,000 men. Today Colonel Chestnut published his statement to show that we have sent 13,000 instead of the mere number required of us, so Mr. Barnwell can hold up his head again. April 30th, the last day of this month of calamities. Lovell left the women and children to be shelled and took the army to a safe place. I do not understand why we do not send the women and children to the safe place and let the army stay where the fighting is to be. Armies are to save, not to be saved. At least, to be saved is not their raison d'etre exactly. If this goes on, the spirit of our people will be broken. One ray of comfort comes from Henry Marshall. Our army of the peninsula is fine. So good, I do not think McClellan will venture to attack it. So mote it be. May 6th. Mine is a painful, self-imposed task, but why write when I have nothing to chronicle but disaster? Footnote. The siege of Yorktown was begun on April 5, 1862, the place being evacuated by the Confederates on May 4th. End footnote. So I read instead. First Consuelo, then Columba, two ends of the pole, certainly, and then a translated edition of Elective Affinities. Food enough for thought in every one of this odd assortment of books. At the Prestons, where I am staying, because Mr. Chestnut has gone to see his crabbed old father, whom he loves, and who is reported ill, I met Christopher Hampton. He tells us Wigfall is out on a warpath, wants them to strike for Maryland. The President's opinion of the move is not given. 
Also Mr. Hampton met the first lieutenant of the Kirkwoods, E. M. Boykin, says he is just the same man he was in the South Carolina College. In whatever company you may meet him, he is the pleasantest man there. A telegram reads, We have repulsed the enemy at Williamsburg. Footnote. The Battle of Williamsburg was fought on May 5, 1862, by a part of McClellan's army under General Hooker and others, the Confederates being commanded by General Johnston. End footnote. Oh, if we could drive them back to their ain country! Richmond was hard-pressed this day. The Mercury of today says, Jeff Davis now treats all men as if they were idiotic insects. Mary Preston said all sisters quarreled. No, we never quarrel, I and mine. We keep all our bitter words for our enemies. We are frank heathens. We hate our enemies and love our friends. Some people, our kind, can never make up after a quarrel. Hard words once only, and all is over. To us, forgiveness is impossible. Forgiveness means calm indifference, philosophy while love lasts. Forgiveness of love's wrongs is impossible. Those dutiful wives who piously overlook, well, everything, do not care one fig for their husbands. I settled that in my own mind years ago. Some people think it magnanimous to praise their enemies and to show their impartiality and justice by acknowledging the faults of their friends. I am for the simple rule, the good old plan. I praise whom I love and abuse whom I hate. Mary Preston has been translating Schiller aloud. We are provided with Bulwer's translation, Mrs. Austin's, Coleridge's, and Carlyle's and we show how each renders the passage Mary is to convert into English. In Wallenstein, at one point of the Max and Thecla scene, I like Carlyle better than Coleridge, though they say Coleridge's Wallenstein is the only translation in the world half so good as the original. Mrs. Barstow repeated some beautiful scraps by Uhland, which I had never heard before. She is to write them for us. Peace and a literary leisure for my old age, unbroken by care and anxiety. General Preston accused me of degenerating into a boarding-house gossip, and is answered triumphantly by his daughters. But, Papa, one you love to gossip with full well. Hampton Estate has fifteen hundred Negroes on Lake Washington, Mississippi. Hampton girls talking in the language of James's novels. Neither Wade nor Preston, that splendid boy, would lay a lance in rest, or couch it, which is the right phrase for fighting, to preserve slavery. They hate it as we do. What are they fighting for? Southern rights, whatever that is. And they do not want to be understrappers forever to the Yankees. They talk well enough about it, but I forget what they say. Johnny Chestnut says, No use to give a reason. A fellow could not stay away from the fight, not well. It takes four Negroes to wait on Johnny satisfactorily. It is this giving up that kills me. Norfolk they talk of now. Why not Charleston next? I read in a Western letter, not Beauregard, but the soldiers who stopped to drink the whiskey they had captured from the enemy, lost us Shiloh. Cock Robin is as dead as he ever will be now. What matters it who killed him? May 12th. Mr. Chestnut says he is very glad he went to town. Everything in Charleston is so much more satisfactory than it is reported. Troops are in good spirits. It will take a lot of ironclads to take that city. Isaac Haynes said at dinner yesterday that both Beauregard and the President had a great opinion of Mr. Chestnut's natural ability for strategy and military evolution. 
Honorable Mr. Barnwell concurred. That is, Mr. Barnwell had been told so by the President. Then why did not the President offer me something better than an aideship? I heard he offered to make you a general last year, and you said you could not go over other men's shoulders until you had earned promotion. You are too hard to please. No, not exactly that. I was only offered a colonelcy, and Mr. Barnwell persuaded me to stick to the Senate. Then he wanted my place, and between the two stools I fell to the ground. My Molly will forget Liege and her babies, too. I asked her who sent me that beautiful bouquet I found on my center table. I give it to you. Twas give to me. And Molly was all wriggle, giggle, blush. May 18th. Norfolk has been burned, and the Merrimack sunk without striking a blow since her coup d'etat in Hampton Roads. Red Milton. See the speech of Adam to Eve in a new light. Women will not stay at home, will go out to see and be seen, even if it be by the devil himself. Very encouraging letters from Honorable Mr. Miminger and from L.Q. Washington. They tell the same story in very different words. It amounts to this. Not one foot of Virginia soil is to be given up without a bitter fight for it. We have 105,000 men in all, McClellan 190,000. We can stand that disparity. What things I have been said to have said. Mr. Blank heard me make scoffing remarks about the governor and the council, or he thinks he heard me. James Chestnut wrote him a note that my name was to be kept out of it. Indeed, that he was never to mention my name again under any possible circumstances. It was all preposterous nonsense, but it annoyed my husband amazingly. He said it was a scheme to use my chatter to his injury. He was very kind about it. He knows my real style so well that he can always tell my real impudence from what is fabricated for me. There is said to be an order from Butler turning over the women of New Orleans to his soldiers. Thus is the measure of his iniquities filled. We thought that generals always restrained, by shot or sword if need be, the brutality of soldiers. This hideous, cross-eyed beast orders his men to treat the ladies of New Orleans as women of the town, to punish them, he says, for their insolence. Footnote. General Benjamin F. Butler took command of New Orleans on May 2, 1862. The author's reference is to his famous Order Number 28, which reads, as the officers and soldiers of the United States have been subject to repeated insults from the women, calling themselves ladies, of New Orleans, in return for the most scrupulous non-interference and courtesy on our part, it is ordered that hereafter, when any female shall, by word, gesture, or movement, insult or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States, she shall be regarded and held liable to be treated as a woman of the town plying her vocation." This and other acts of Butler in New Orleans led Jefferson Davis to issue a proclamation declaring Butler to be a felon and an outlaw, and if captured that he should be instantly hanged. In December, Butler was superseded at New Orleans by General Banks. End footnote. Footprints on the boundaries of another world once more. Willie Taylor, before he left home for the army, fancied one day, day, remember, that he saw Albert Rett standing by his side. He recoiled from the ghostly presence. "'You need not do that, Willie. You will soon be as I am.' Willie rushed into the next room to tell them what had happened, and fainted. It had a very depressing effect upon him. And now the other day he died in Virginia. May 24th. 
The enemy are landing at Georgetown. With a little more audacity, where could they not land? But we have given them such a scare, they are cautious. If it be true, I hope some cool-headed white men will make the Negroes save the rice for us. It is so much needed. They say it might have been done at Port Royal with a little more energy. South Carolinians have pluck enough, but they only work by fits and starts. There is no continuous effort. They can't be counted on for steady work. They will stop to play, or enjoy life in some shape. Without let or hindrance, Halleck is being reinforced. Beauregard, unmolested, was making some fine speeches, and issuing proclamations, while we were fatuously looking for him to make a tiger's spring on Huntsville. Why not? Hope springs eternal in the southern breast. My Hebrew friend, Mim Cohen, has a son in the war. He is in John Chestnut's company. Cohen is a high name among the Jews. It means Aaron. She has long fits of silence and is absent-minded. If she is suddenly roused, she is apt to say, with overflowing eyes and clasped hands, If it please God to spare his life. Her daughter is the sweetest little thing. The son is the mother's idol. Mrs. Cohen was Miriam de Leon. I have known her intimately all my life. Mrs. Bartow, the widow of Colonel Bartow, who was killed at Manassas, was Miss Berrien, daughter of Judge Berrien of Georgia. She is now in one of the departments here, cutting bonds, Confederate bonds, for five hundred Confederate dollars a year, a penniless woman. Judge Carroll, her brother-in-law, has been urgent with her to come and live in his home. He has a large family, and she will not be an added burden to him. In spite of all he can say, she will not forego her resolution. She will be independent. She is a resolute little woman, with the softest, silkiest voice and ways, and clever to the last point. Columbia is the place for good living, pleasant people, pleasant dinners, pleasant drives. I feel that I have put the dinners in the wrong place. They are the climax of the good things here. This is the most hospitable place in the world, and the dinners are worthy of it. In Washington there was an endless succession of state dinners. I was kindly used. I do not remember ever being condemned to two dull neighbors. On one side or the other was a clever man, so I liked Washington dinners. In Montgomery there were a few dinners, Mrs. Pollard's, for instance, but the society was not smoothed down or in shape. Such as it was, it was given over to balls and suppers. In Charleston, Mr. Chestnut went to gentlemen's dinners all the time, no ladies present. Flowers were sent to me, and I was taken to drive and asked to tea. There could not have been nicer suppers, more perfect of their kind, than were to be found at the winding up of those festivities. In Richmond there were balls, which I did not attend, very few to which I was asked, the McFarlands and Lyons, all I can remember. James Chestnut dined out nearly every day. But then the breakfasts, the Virginia breakfasts, where were always pleasant people. Indeed, I have had a good time everywhere, always clever people, and people I liked, and everybody so good to me. Here in Columbia, family dinners are the specialty. You call, or they pick you up and drive home with you. Oh, stay to dinner, and you stay gladly. They send for your husband, and he comes willingly. Then comes a perfect dinner. You do not see how it could be improved, and yet they have not had time to alter things or add because of the unexpected guests. They have everything of the best, silver, glass, china, table linen, and damask, etc. And then the planters live within themselves, as they call it. From the plantations come mutton, beef, poultry, 
cream, butter, eggs, fruits, and vegetables. It is easy to live here with a cook who has been sent for training to the best eating house in Charleston. Old Mrs. Chestnut's Romeo was apprentice at Jones's. I do not know where Mrs. Preston's got his degree, but he deserves a medal. At the Preston's, James Chestnut induced Buck to declaim something about Joan of Arc, which she does in a manner to touch all hearts. While she was speaking, my husband turned to a young gentleman who was listening to the chatter of several girls, and said, Écoutez! The youth stared at him a moment in bewilderment, then gravely rose and began turning down the gas. Isabella said, Écoutez, then, means put out the lights. I recall a scene which took place during a ball given by Mrs. Preston while her husband was in Louisiana. Mrs. Preston was resplendent in diamonds, point lace, and velvet. There is a gentle dignity about her which is very attractive. Her voice is low and sweet, and her will is iron. She is exceedingly well informed, but very quiet, retiring, and reserved. Indeed, her apparent gentleness almost amounts to timidity. She has chiseled regularity of features, a majestic figure, perfectly molded. Governor Manning said to me, Look at Sister Caroline. Does she look as if she had the pluck of a heroine? Then he related how a little while ago William, the butler, came to tell her that John, the footman, was drunk in the cellar, mad with drink, that he had a carving-knife which he was brandishing in drunken fury, and he was keeping everybody from their business, threatening to kill anyone who dared to go into the basement. They were like a flock of frightened sheep down there. She did not speak to one of us, but followed William down to the basement, holding up her skirts. She found the servants scurrying everywhere, screaming and shouting that John was crazy and going to kill them. John was bellowing like a bull of Bashan, knife in hand, chasing them at his pleasure. Mrs. Preston walked up to him. "'Give me that knife,' she demanded. He handed it to her. She laid it on the table. "'Now come with me,' she said, putting her hand on his collar. She led him away to the empty smokehouse, and there she locked him in and put the key in her pocket." Then she returned to her guests, without a ripple on her placid face. She told me of it, smiling and serene as you see her now, the governor concluded. Before the war shut him in, General Preston sent to the lakes for his salmon, to Mississippi for his venison, to the mountains for his mutton and grouse. It is good enough, the best dish at all these houses, what the Spanish call the hearty welcome. Thackeray says at every American table he was first served with grilled hostess. At the head of the table sat a person, fiery-faced, anxious, nervous, inwardly murmuring like Falstaff. Would it were night, Hal, and all were well. At Mulberry the house is always filled to overflowing, and one day is curiously like another. People are coming and going, carriages driving up or driving off. It has the air of a watering-place, where one does not pay, and where there are no strangers. At Christmas the china-closet gives up its treasures. The glass, china, silver, fine linen reserved for grand occasions come forth. As for the dinner itself, it is only a matter of greater quantity. More turkey, more mutton, more partridges, more fish, etc., and more solemn stiffness. Usually a half-dozen persons unexpectedly dropping in make no difference. The family let the housekeeper know. That is all. People are beginning to come here from Richmond. One swallow does not make a summer, but it shows how the wind blows, these straws do, Mrs. Constitution Brown and Mrs. Wise. 
The Gibsons are at Dr. Gibbs's. It does look squally. We are drifting on the breakers. End of chapter 11, part 4